So Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. And the words will be behind me on the screen. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, nor have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Evening, folks. That's going to be loud. We'll see. Hi. How you doing? Uh, my name is Mark. It's uh, great to have you here at church tonight. I feel like that's a bit set up for a tall person. So I'm going to lower this down and I'm going to pray for us uh, that uh, this time would be uh, useful for all of us. So if you're a praying person, then uh, join with me and let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much uh, that you're a God who speaks, that you're a God who wants to make yourself known. Uh, thank you so much, Father, for giving us your word and for showing us in your word, your glorious son, our saviour, Jesus. Uh, thank you, Father, for this time tonight to consider how our lives ought to revolve around him and be lived for him. Uh, Lord, we really want this time to be useful for us, not just to be empty words, but we want this to be just one piece of the marvellous thing that you're doing in us and through us in this world, conforming us to the likeness of your son, Jesus. So we ask, please, would you use this time towards that end, uh, whatever it takes. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, uh, as Grace has mentioned, we're, we're thinking at the start of this year, as we do at the start of every year, about our church mission statement. And we've called this series uh, 2020, refocusing on our mission. And I'm not going to make any apologies for reaching for the very easy 2020, 2020 vision pun that was hanging right there. Uh, we knew that 2020 has been coming for a long time and every church has been readily waiting to be able to do a sermon series about 2020 vision. So here it is. Uh, two weeks is what we're going to do and we're going to think about uh, taking these two weeks to refocus on the mission of our church, to know Christ and to make him known. We think that uh, doing this at the start of the year is a really important thing. Because it's very easy for us to lose our focus over the course of a year, I think. Uh, if you can think about it like this, any of you who wear glasses, you will know the pain of uh, glasses picking up uh, you know, fingerprints and smudges. This has been a lifelong problem for me, and it's been accelerated all the more so since having kids, uh, because now it's not only my own fingerprints and smudges and stuff, it's little fingerprints, kids' fingerprints, and more than that, like snotty noses that leave things on my glasses when they come in for cuddles and whatever else. And um, the problem, if you wear glasses, is that you, get, you pick up these smudges and these stains and things on your glasses without even noticing it. They're just imperceptible in the course of your everyday life. But over time, they build up. 
And they build up a lot. And I can see some people looking at their glasses now thinking, yeah, you know what? I haven't wiped my glasses for a while. That's right, because you haven't noticed they've gotten dirty. Uh, it gets to a point, actually, where you, you're looking through your glasses and the, you think to yourself, Is it, I didn't know it was going to be foggy today. Like, didn't know that was going to be the weather. And, and it, what it takes, for me at least, is for somebody to come along you know, from, from outside, usually it's my wife Catherine, and to tell me, Mark, your glasses are disgusting, take them off and, and do something about it. And so I give them a little wipe on my dirty shirt, and it, and it gets better, right? And r- amazingly, when you clean these lenses that you look through, suddenly you can see the stuff that was right in front of you, colours return to the world again. And that stuff that was right in front of your nose, you don't miss it anymore. Now, look, it's a bit of a trivial illustration, But I reckon that that problem of gradually losing focus, gradually being obscured from that thing that you ought to be looking at, that's a problem that organizations face, groups face, churches face. It's it's a problem called mission creep. Maybe you've heard that term before. Uh, Mission creep is something that happens when gradually and over time, there are these small kind of shifts in your objectives as a group, in what you're aiming for. And you don't notice it because it's so gradual and so imperceptible, but over a long period of time, you end up actually aiming for something radically different than what you set out to aim for. Have you heard of mission creep? Uh, And it does happen in churches. It happens as church culture kind of calcifies a church, uh, as practices that you just do, things that ministries that we start, things we give ourselves to, they get just sort of ingrained in the life of the church. And over time, it's very easy for a church to end up spending a whole lot of time doing stuff that bears nothing no resemblance to the mission that they set out to achieve in the first place. That's what we're trying to avoid by doing this series. And so you could think of uh, these next two weeks as kind of an opportunity for us as a church to take our glasses off and to wipe the lenses and to see afresh uh, the mission that we are supposed to be focusing on as a body of believers. And and this passage in Philippians 3, it's a great place for us to to start that process, to, to reassess, refocus on our mission. Because in this passage, the Apostle Paul, he tells us what his life's mission is, and he says that he wants us to have that mission too. We didn't read the verse, but in verse 15, immediately after uh, where we stopped reading, Paul says to the Philippian church and to us by extension, he says, those of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. He's saying, come on guys, you ought to think the same way as me on this. What is his vision? What is Paul's focus, his mission in life? It's right there in the middle of this passage, verse 10. Paul says, I want to know Christ. That's That's the guiding principle in Paul's life. I want to know Christ. Now, what does that look like? How do we do that? Uh, How do we make sure that we stay on track with that mission? How do we make that mission our mission? That's what we're going to be thinking about tonight. Now, to dive into this passage, to make sense of, of some of the radical things that Paul says in that section that we had read out for us, you have to know a little bit of the background about the Apostle Paul. Uh, some of his uh, sort of life history, if you like. You, you may know, and he actually tells you, if you read the beginning of Philippians chapter 3, about his life before he met Jesus, where he was uh, sort of the arch-Jewish leader, you know, one of the, the, the most Jewish, the most respectable, the most self-righteous people uh, in all of Israel. He was a Pharisee. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, zealous, persecuting the church, you know. He was the kind of Jewish religious leader who had every kind of... Uh, spiritual tick in his box. He had every reason to be self-righteous and self-confident about his standing before God. That was Paul before. 
the Paul that writes this letter to the Philippians is a Paul who is radically different from that. Something changes in Paul's life, and you may know the story. You can read it in the book of Acts chapter 9, where Paul, on the road to Damascus, as he's heading out to persecute the church one day, has an encounter with Jesus with the risen Jesus, who's been raised from the dead and appears in glory to Paul and rocks Paul's world. Says, Paul, everything you've been thinking about me and everything you've been thinking about yourself is wrong. And let me, let me tell you actually the truth. As, as Paul encounters Jesus, what happens is that Paul's understanding of Jesus gets clarified, but also his understanding of himself. Paul's always seen himself as a self-righteous kind of person, the kind of person who can stand on his own two feet before God and in front of his own merits. But when he meets Jesus, he realises that he is a radically sinful man. And he tells us, that you may have picked up on it in verse 9, that as he meets Jesus, he discovers that that righteousness that he thought he had by obeying God's law, by doing lots of good religious rituals, he says it counts for nothing. He realised he was spiritually bankrupt and that the only righteousness that he could hope for was a righteousness that would be given to him, given as a gift to him. That's what he says there in verse 9, the righteousness that comes from God uh, on the basis of faith. Now, if you had to kind of encapsulate in a nutshell the good news of the Christian faith, it's that. It's what we sang about earlier, that forgiveness was bought for you. You didn't have to earn it. It was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul realised on the road to Damascus. And as he meets Jesus and he has, as he has this kind of realisation that he's, he's been looking at the world all wrong, as Jesus, if you like, wipes his lenses clean, Paul now sees everything completely differently. He says, as we pick up in our passage from verse 7, he says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. All those past religious accomplishments, those things that he thought made him right before God. He says, I realise now those things were, were loss. I thought they were gain, but they were loss. It's that kind of accounting kind of language. He says, you know, I thought I was doing all these good works and they put me in the black with God, but I realised actually at the end of it, they put me in the red instead. But it's more than that. It's not just that now Paul sees all those old religious rituals that he did as a loss. Well, look what he says there in verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Everything as a loss, he says. Not just that stuff in his past. What, what else is encompassed when Paul says that? Everything. Everything in his life at that very moment. Everything. Everything in his future that he could possibly ever achieve or attain. Everything, he says. Now I see it as loss. That includes his accomplishments. Uh, That includes any possessions that Paul has, any friends in Paul's life, any family. He says everything there, it's it's a loss. I realise that now. It's a loss. And in fact, he he uses a stronger word than that. You you pick up on it there in verse 8. He says, I consider them garbage. Now, garbage is probably a polite translation of the word. It's a Greek word, skubalon, which is really the word for excrement. Do you get what Paul is saying here? It's a strong comparison, isn't it? Saying everything else in my life, it doesn't matter what it is, you name it, compared to what I've got now, it's like excrement, it's scubalon. Now, in comparison to what? That's the question. What has made Paul realise this? Well, you see there that it's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul has found something so precious, so important, such a a treasure that he says, it doesn't matter what you could offer me. By comparison, it's down there. 
knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that is my highest treasure right now. He's met Jesus. He's been given that righteousness that is through faith. It kind of reminds me of the parable that Jesus told, the parable of the pearl, the parable of the hidden treasure, where the man finds the treasure hidden in the field and he goes away and in joy, he sells everything he has so that he can come back and buy that field and get that treasure. And Jesus says, that's what getting the kingdom of God is like. That's what the righteousness that comes through faith is like. Paul has discovered that. He's found this treasure and it is a joy for him. He says here, it's a joy for him to have lost all things now that he's gained Christ. To Paul, knowing Jesus is that good. It's of surpassing worth. It's hard for me to, to really kind of get your vision large enough to see just how worthy Jesus is, just how incredibly blessed you are to have Christ if you have him and nothing else. And I think it's worth pausing at this point and trying to just do a little bit of self-reflection. This is a really lofty thing for Paul to say, isn't it? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, it's of surpassing worth. Everything else in my life, scubalon by comparison. It's worth asking the question whether that's our attitude, isn't it? Whether we esteem knowing Jesus as highly as Paul does. Whether everything else in our lives is worthless by comparison. Um, in order to do that, in order to reflect on whether that's true for you in your own heart, here's a little scenario. Uh, if you think to yourself, you have a forced choice, and you can choose between Jesus or anything else in your life, fill in the blank, Jesus or whatever, is there anything that you would choose over Jesus? Any, any accomplishment in your life, any possession, any relationship, any aspiration that you have, any commitment, any hobby, any whatever? Is there anything in your life that you would choose over Jesus if you were forced to make the choice? Because if there is, then whatever that thing is, in, in essence, what you're saying is that I consider everything else a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of owning my own house. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of my grades at uni. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of the respect of my family. You know, if, you, if you see the, the world through clean gospel lenses, then you will know that all things, all those things, good as they are, they are just scubalon in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. If you, if you see the world through those clear gospel lenses, if you see Jesus as he truly is, then you're going to be the kind of person who can sing the words of Be Thou My Vision, you know, that great hymn, Be Thou My Vision. You'll be able to sing those words and mean it. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, naught be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Top of the list. <laughs> Number one with a bullet. No rivals, no equals. That's where Jesus belongs in our lives. Is that where he is for you today? Jesus is worthy of all of that. And it's because Paul sees that, that now he has become, if you like, fixated on Jesus. <laughs> There's nothing else that can interest Paul anymore. He's become absolutely zoned in on Jesus. Uh, I want to introduce you to a, um, an artwork. It's uh, from Belgium, uh, from a, 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 
chapel over there, from, and it's made in the 15th century. It's called the Ghent Altarpiece. It's a whole range of uh, artworks depicting figures in the Bible. There's a bit of a close-up there. And uh, you may notice that the, the portrait at the bottom there, if we can zoom in on it again, it's a picture of heaven, basically. And there's a lamb on an altar depicting Jesus, the lamb of God who was slain. And all of the heavenly hosts are kind of surrounded around him, focusing in on Jesus. Now, this artwork's magnificent artwork, and it went viral uh, this last week, which is a strange thing for a 600-year-old Belgian artwork to do. Uh, they don't go viral very often, but this one did. And the reason was, uh, over the last few years, art restorers have been restoring this artwork to its original glory. Because what happens is it, the painting is painted 600 years ago, and then over time, people come by and they touch up little bits of the artwork, and it, and it gradually changes. Uh, but the art restorers decided, no, let's get rid of all that. Let's go back to the original, scrape off all the new paint and go back to the original paint, see what it was really like. And in particular, the, the part of this artwork that went viral was that lamb in the centre. If we can zoom in again, zoom in one more time, and this was the, the uh, lamb's face as it looked about a year ago. But as they started to strip off the paint and find the original under it, it was a little bit more alarming, uh, the original. So if we can scrape off the paint, uh, that was the face of the lamb as the artists had originally painted it. And I don't know about you, but that thing is kind of nightmare fuel, I reckon. Um, the, the, one of the creepiest parts about this is that, um, you know the difference between predators and prey when it comes to where their eyes are on their head? If you're a predator, your eyes are on the front of your head. If you're prey, they're on the side. Lamb's eyes should be on the side because they, lambs get eaten. This lamb's eyes are on the front. What does that tell you? He's a predator. All right? This lamb's coming to get you. It's, and it's just a bit too human, isn't it? It's kind of worrying. Anyway, the internet had a field day with this. Jokes and comparisons were made. People recognised there were resemblance between this steely gaze and the gaze of Derek Zoolander. <laughs> bit of blue steel going on. Uh, I really like that some people noticed that actually the lamb looks a lot like Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook. Thought that one was helpful. People recognised that um, uh, this, this going back to something more horrifying was a bit like Mr Bean's attempt to um, touch up the Mona Lisa, if you can remember that. Uh, but if we can go back to the lamb, uh, one more slide. The, the real reason why hundreds of thousands of people were talking about this depiction of Jesus this week was because there was something about this face that was just captivating. Uh, people reported you know, having nightmares about this lamb. They couldn't get it out of their head. They couldn't look away. It's kind of got one of those feelings where no matter where you move in the room, it's kind of always looking at you. It's that sort of a sense, isn't it? It's not just that we see the lamb, but it's that the lamb sees us. That's the feeling. Now, look, I, uh, this, this illustration might be a bit of a long walk to get to my point, uh, but I want to say that in a, in a similar but less kind of terrifying way. When, when you see Jesus as he is, unveiled with clear eyes, when you see him as the Lamb of God who offers you the righteousness that you could never earn for yourself, when you see him in all of his glory, he captivates your heart. That is what happens in conversion. When you become a Christian, when you behold Jesus, you are captivated by a vision of him and you can't look away. That's becoming a Christian. That's what's happened to Paul, in, uh, and he talks about it here in Philippians 3. He's been captivated by this Jesus. And so now he says, we get to the heart of this section, he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. I want to know this one, this, this one who is of extreme worth. 
I want to know Christ. Now, on one level, that might sound like a strange thing for Paul to say, right? Because he, obviously he knows Christ. He knows who Jesus is. He's met him. He understands who Jesus is. But I think the, the sense of that kind of phrase there, I want to know Christ, is I want to know Christ more. I think that's kind of what he's saying. Because all throughout uh, the New Testament, Christians are regularly described as those people who know Jesus, right? You might think of John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. It's kind of got that relational sense to it, right? Uh, Salvation, you see, it's more than just kind of knowing about Jesus. It's about knowing him personally, having a deep, intimate relationship with him. Paul says, I want to know Jesus like that. In fact, that word know, it has a rich kind of Old Testament usage as well. Uh, In the Old Testament, the word know kind of described like the most intimate and the closest kind of union and connection that you could have. So for instance, when a husband and a wife would come together, that was described as the husband knowing his wife. It's the closest, most intimate kind of connection that you can have. And so Paul is is using this word with this rich history. I want to know Christ. And he's essentially saying, I want to have as deep a knowledge of Christ as I can. I want to be as close to Christ relationally as I possibly can be. Now, let's pause uh, because that all sounds well and good. And hopefully you're on board with that. But it's still pretty abstract, isn't it? Like, what does it actually look like to know Jesus deeply, relationally like that? How do you know if you know Jesus like that? You know, is it about kind of having like warm, fuzzy feelings every time you think about Jesus? Does that mean I know him deeply? Well, maybe, but I think Paul uh, has actually something much more concrete in mind here when he describes wanting to know Jesus like that. Look what he goes on and says in verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. What Paul is talking about in knowing Christ is he's talking about walking in newness of life. He's saying, I want to be animated by by the resurrection power of Jesus, by the Spirit of God living within me so that I can spend my life serving God, bringing him glory, just as Jesus did as he died on the cross for me. That's what Paul is saying. Uh, That's consistent, I think, with how Paul describes himself all throughout the letter to the Philippians, if you read it. He talks about his life as being like a drink offering that's being poured out in the service of God and others. Uh, Paul says, you see, that's what knowing Jesus looks like, and that's what I want to do. I want to deny myself, take up my cross, bring glory to God, all while while being empowered by God's Spirit to do that work uh, through me. And so, friends, do understand that as, as we come to the, our mission series this year, as we talk about knowing Christ and making Christ known, what we mean when we, when we say knowing Christ is that very concrete kind of a sense, that becoming more like Jesus kind of a sense. If I had to try and uh, define what we mean when we say knowing Christ more, what we're talking about is walking with Jesus as he makes us more like him. That's what it means to know Christ more, to walk with Jesus as he makes us more like him. And so now if anybody ever asks you, what does that thing on the wall out there in the front of the church mean? Well, now you'll be able to tell them. You know what it means. It means walking with Jesus as he makes us more like him. At least you know what the first half means. Wait till next week to find out what the second half means. Now, at that, becoming like Jesus as Jesus does that transformation work in me, 
that, that expresses itself in a hundred billion different ways. It's almost pointless to try and list the number of ways that we become like Jesus as he works through us. It's a, a whole of life overhaul where our, our heart is changed to align with Jesus' own heart. We learn to love the things that he loves, hate the things that he hates. We think the way that he thinks. We have hopes and desires and longings that echo those of Jesus. We, we delight to honour God and to, to spend our lives in order to bring him glory. It's, it's a comprehensive transformation from your old self to be now like your saviour, Jesus. And Paul's really honest in Philippians chapter 3 that that kind of a transformation, that kind of knowing Jesus, that it's not quick and it's not easy. Have a look at what he says here in verses 12 to 14. Paul says, not that I've already obtained all of this, not that I know Jesus fully yet, or that I've arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, straining, uh, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You notice some of the language Paul uses there to describe this process, right? I press on. I forget what is behind and I strain forward towards what is ahead. You know, what Paul is trying to, trying to say to us here is that if you want to know Christ more, if you want to grow in your faith, you want to grow closer to Jesus and be more like him, you are going to have to break a holy sweat. That's what Paul is t- teaching us here. And so let me challenge you tonight that if 2020 is a year where you hope to become more like Jesus, to know him more, then do hear this challenge. It is going to require something of you. It's not going to happen by accident. You will have to do something to become more like Jesus. You will have to break a holy sweat to do so. And, and look at, I love how honest Paul is in this passage that when it comes to that process, exerting ourselves to know Jesus more, that we've all got growing to do. There's all room, each one of us has room for growth, including Paul. Look at verse 15. Paul says, all of us then, including himself, who are mature should take such a view of things, right? Even mature Christians should recognise, I've got to press on. I've got to strain forward to know Jesus more. Because nobody, here's the truth, nobody reaches retirement age as a Christian. There is no long service leave in the Christian faith. There is no end to your growth as a Christian, except when the Lord chooses to take you home. That's the end of your growing. And so it's actually, it's a healthy Christian attitude to be hungry to know Christ more. You know, if you're ever at a point in your Christian life, you know, where you feel like you're pretty content with where you are, as a Christian, that you've, you know, you've done some hard yards, you've grown quite a lot, you've changed a lot, and you know what, you think you can just put your feet up a little bit and take your foot off the accelerator because uh, you, know, you can't see many ways that you really need to grow as a Christian. If you ever find yourself in that place, can I warn you that that's a dangerous place to be in? Because, because every Christian should have a hunger to know Christ more. That is normal Christian life, being dissatisfied with our current state, dissatisfied with how much we know Jesus and hungering to know him more. Every one of us should have that, that hunger deep inside of us. That's Paul's focus in life. That is his vision. That is what he's on about, strenuously pressing forward to know Jesus more. And friends, it should be our vision too, this year and every year. And, and so I'm hoping that today as we 
just reflect and remind ourselves of some of this, that what's starting to happen for us is that some of those smudges and, and smears on our lenses are starting to be cleared away and that we're starting to see Jesus and we're starting to see ourselves and we're starting to see the world as it truly is yet again. Because the truth is that it is really easy to lose focus, isn't it? Every one of us knows that. It is easy to get distracted as a Christian from that task of knowing Jesus more. You know, gradually, just imperceptibly, we drift. We become tired. We become busy. We become complacent. We become lazy. And before you know it, you find yourself just kind of going through the motions of the Christian faith. Yeah, you come to church when you can. Yeah, maybe you open your Bible, you flick to a passage that you've read a hundred times before. It makes no difference to you anymore. You pray a prayer when you're in trouble. You pray a prayer you've prayed a hundred times before without thinking of it. And just generally, you don't spend time thinking about growing in your faith, making progress. You've resigned yourself to the fact that, well, the Christian that you are today is going to be pretty much the Christian that you are when you die. It's so easy, friends, to gradually slip into that mindset to slip away from this mission. And so I think what we've got to do as, as we have this time tonight at the start of our year is that we have to put some things into place to try and stop that from happening, stop that drift from taking place this year so that we stay focused. And so, friends, if you want to, if you want to know Christ more in 2020, then what I've got for you are three suggestions tonight, three points of application, if you like, uh, that if you are committed to walking with Jesus as he makes you more like him, then here are a few things that I think you should probably do this year. Three suggestions. Number one, first thing you should do is you should invest in relationships. Uh, and I'm talking about relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ here at church. You should invest in those relationships. Now, that might sound like a bit of a um, counterintuitive kind of uh, application point here. Why is investing in relationships important if we want to know Christ more? Well, let me explain. Uh, the reason why this is important, the reason why you ought to do this, is because there is a difference between a congregation and an aggregation. Do you know what the difference between those two things is? An aggregation, just kind of a group of people who've come together for a, you know, a common purpose, to hear a speaker or to come to an event or something like that. Uh, but a congregation is very different. Aggregation, it's kind of like a bag of marbles, right? Lots of individual things very close together, kind of slip sliding all over each other, but there's no points of connection between those individual members, right? Whereas a congregation is much more like a bunch of grapes. Yes, lots of individual members, but organically, relationally connected as a whole Bunch, right? A congregation is a community in which all aspects of the members' lives touch each other. A congregation is a group of people who uh, eat together, who learn together, who laugh together, who rejoice and mourn together, who live together, really. That's a congregation. And the depth and the intimacy of having relationships like that, that real kind of community, that's vital if you want to grow as a Christian. C.S. Lewis has this marvellous quote, and he says this in uh, his little book, Mere Christianity. He says, Christ works on us in all sorts of ways, but above all, he works on us through each other. That's a profound thing that he's saying there, that, that Jesus works on you to make you more like him in all sorts of ways, but above all, he does that work through each other, through your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is why... It is so important to invest in relationships, not just to try and be that kind of lone ranger kind of Christian. 
you know, the kind of person who thinks that they can just kind of live the Christian life detached from anyone else. They can have their private little devotional time and that somehow God is going to work through that and transform them to be like Jesus. Let me tell you, that's, it's insufficient to think like that, to just kind of be a, a regular church goer. It's insufficient. John Wesley famously said that the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. Nothing of solitary religion. You must be in real, meaningful, deep relationships with other believers so that you can have meaningful involvement in one another's lives. You need that if you want to grow. Relationship is the first essential ingredient in our growth together. And so let me challenge you tonight. Let me challenge you to proactively set aside time in your week to invest in relationships because it won't happen if you don't set aside time to do it. It doesn't have to be much, half an hour a week or whatever. Invest in relationships with new people here at church. Invite them over to your house for coffee. Go and meet them down at the beach. Invest in relationships with people who are different from you. That would be of great worth in the kingdom of God. Uh, Invest even in existing relationships, strengthening them so that the bonds of fellowship are strong and you can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Deliberately set aside time to invest in relationships because it won't happen by accident. Investing in relationships, it creates a context for you to grow as a Christian. That's my first suggestion for you. My second suggestion, and if you know me, you probably should have seen this coming. My second suggestion is that you should join a home group. Uh, that's if you want to grow as a Christian this year, you should join a home group. Um, we did a church survey, you might remember, uh, in uh, the second half of last year, where we asked hundreds of people in our church a very long list of questions, and you were all very gracious and filled those out thoroughly for us. And uh, one of the questions that we asked in that church survey was, over the last year, do you feel that you've grown in your Christian faith? You might remember answering that question. Well, as we analysed the data, what we discovered was that the number one predictor of how you answered that question whether you've grown in your faith, the number one predictor was whether you're in a home group or not. If you were in a home group, you were much more likely to report that you had grown much in your faith in the last year than if you weren't in a home group. It was the number one predictor. And here's a little bonus for you in case you're not sold on the value of home groups yet. We also asked the question of, uh, do you feel that you have a strong sense of belonging here in your congregation? And uh, we also discovered that home groups is the number one predictor for people saying, yes, I have a very strong sense of belonging in a congregation. So that sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? That home groups would be the silver bullet like that. Like, think about it. If I could offer you tonight a method through which you would grow in your faith this year and you would strengthen and deepen relationships here in the congregation you're a part of, and if I could offer that to you for free, would you take it? Because that's what a home group is. That's what a home group is offering you. It sounds too good. I'm actually, I'm being cheeky, sorry, because uh, it's not true that home groups are free. I don't want to give that uh, misunderstanding. A home group is not free. There is a cost in a home group, and that cost is commitment. Uh, If you join a home group, it comes with a cost. The cost is showing up every week. It's praying for the people in your home group. It's engaging with God's word. It's opening up your life so that people can speak into it. Uh, That's the cost of doing a home group. And if you try and skirt around that cost and you try and do a home group on the cheap uh, with no commitment, no involvement, no openness, no sharing, no prayer for others, then what you'll discover is that a home group actually won't change you at all. It won't make you any more like Jesus other than standing in a garage is going to make you more like a car. It doesn't work that way. It's not a a magic silver bullet. But actually, if you do pay the cost of joining a home group and committing to it, then you will find that God uses that group to grow you to be more like Jesus. 
And so let me say, if you're someone here, and I understand that most people in this congregation are already in a home group, if that's you, then good on you. Remain committed in a home group this year. Uh, but if you're somebody who's not yet in a home group, perhaps you've always kind of just been thinking about it but never quite taken the step of doing it, then why not make today the day that you sign up and you say, yeah, I'm willing to get involved. I'm going to commit. I'm going to pay the cost because it's worth that cost because whatever else I have to give up to be able to commit to a home group, well, that's on in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Why not take that step today? I think you'd be glad that you did. That's my second suggestion. Thirdly, finally, final suggestion Uh, that if if you want to know Christ, if you want to know the power of his resurrection at work within you so that you can serve God with your life, then a great way for you to experience that is by serving in a ministry here at WBC. That's my third suggestion. Why don't you serve in a ministry here? Um, the, The same church survey that we did last year discovered that uh, whilst home groups were the number one predictor uh, of your Christian growth and your sense of belonging, the number two predictor was actually whether you served in a ministry team or not. And I find that kind of quite surprising. Just by the by, we, we did find that where those, that Venn diagram overlaps of uh, people who are in a home group and who serve in a ministry team, those guys were like uber Christians. They were just like radiating with glory. I don't know how the statistics hold it out. So, you know. uh, but I think the reason, to, the reason why serving in a ministry is actually tied to your growth as a Christian, it's because serving in a ministry uh, does something where week after week, it it teaches you that you are weak and that you are insufficient and that you don't have it in you to do what you're being asked to do. And so as you serve in a ministry week by week, you are being thrust back towards dependence on Jesus to discover that he's faithful and that he's reliable and that he's enough to see you through. Serving in a ministry kind of accelerates your growth as a Christian because it forces you to experience that day by day. At least that's my experience in ministry and I think it's most people's experience as well. And, that I, and I know that that's not a great sales pitch for, uh, you know, come and serve in a ministry, you'll feel really inadequate, but it's the truth and it will be good for you. It will be good for your growth in Christ. You know, we have uh, so many opportunities for people to get involved in ministries here at WBC. More than I could possibly count. Uh, you, could, you could come and, and help out, and we would love for you to help out. We're teaching our Sunday school program to the young kids on Sunday mornings here at WBC. That would be awesome for you to get involved in. You might like to get involved in helping teach ESL to people who are fresh to Australia. Uh, you could think about joining the welcoming team to, to ensure that newcomers are integrated well into our life together. Uh, you could get involved in our evangelistic course, Discover. You want to preach the gospel to people and see them come to trust in Jesus. Come and speak to us about the discover. You could use your creative gifts in the creative team. You could use your tech gifts in the tech team. You could use your music gifts in the music team. You could get involved in pastoral care. There is literally an endless list of ways that you could get involved in a ministry here at WBC. And without exaggeration, there is something for everyone because God has knit us together as a body and every part of the body is necessary. So there's, there's an opportunity for you to get involved in a way that would be appropriate. Now, if, if that sounds interesting to you uh, and you're appetised by that, but you don't know kind of what step to take, just come and chat with us, chat to one of the pastors, chat to anybody on stage. We'll point you in the right direction, someone you can have a conversation with about getting involved. But if you do want to start serving in ministry this year, then let me uh, reiterate that invitation. Come along on Saturday morning to the ministry summit. That'd be a great kind of on-ramp for you uh, to get integrated into a ministry team here at WBC. That's so... That's my sales pitch. That's my third suggestion. There they are. They're the three suggestions for you if you want to grow in your faith this year. You want to know Christ more deeply. Number one, invest in relationships. Number two, join a home group. Number three, serve 
in a ministry. Now, those are certainly not the only three things that you could do uh, to try and grow as a Christian, but they are a good start. And I reckon that being intentional about this, uh, it's going to mean that a year from now, when we come back to our mission uh, in January 2021, it's going to mean that we're less likely to have crept away from our mission, to have drifted into focusing on less important things. If we put these things in place now, then God willing, we will know Christ more this year. Because knowing Jesus is of surpassing worth. That is the truth. And so, friends, I want to... I call you to count everything in your life as loss compared to knowing Jesus. I want to call you to to press on together, to strive towards the prize, to break a holy sweat this year as we walk with Jesus together and as he makes us more like him. Let's pray towards that end.